Well, there are two major themes that I'd like to focus on this morning in our passage from the Gospel of John. And the first is Jesus' identity as the true vine. As soon as you hear that true vine, you realize, well, is there some other vine that's not the true vine? And we'll get, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so Jesus' identity as the true vine and what that implies about his relationship with God and what that implies about Jesus' relationship with us. And then the second theme that I'd like to look at is this whole idea of how is it that we bear much fruit? I know that Rebecca Teal will be asking me what is the title for this sermon, and I've already thought it up. It would be Jesus' Tips for Growing Good Grapes. So, starting with the first topic of this idea of Jesus' statement, uh, I am the true vine. You may know that there are seven of these I am statements in the Gospel of John in which Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door to the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, and then finally this seventh one, the true vine. Well, where is this vine uh, image coming from? In the Old Testament, there are many allusions to actually the nation of Israel, the people of God, as being a vine. And we'll actually look at one of these references. It's in Psalm 80. And Psalm 80 is a lament. Israel is not in a good situation in relationship to her enemies. She's being oppressed. And this uh, psalmist is not holding back, telling God what's the problem here. So this is Psalm 80, verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then here's the part with the metaphor about the vine. You brought a vine out of Egypt. So referring to the Israelites when they are enslaved in Egypt and out of the Exodus, they come into the land of Canaan, into Israel. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So this unpacks even more this metaphor of Israel as the vine that is fertilized and tended by the Heavenly Father and abides in his care. But if we've read the Bible, we know that actually the people of God were not completely obedient to their Heavenly Father. And in Isaiah, we read about how this beautifully tended vine that was planted actually just come, it becomes a wild vine that just gives fruit to these sort of little wild bitter grapes. I don't know if you've ever had one of those wild grapes. I have, not really very delicious, a lot of seeds, not very sweet. So this vine is kind of the unfaithful vine. 
And then Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true vine. And what are his qualifications for claiming that he is the true vine? Well, ultimately, it was really his loving relationship with his heavenly father. He is obedient to his heavenly father, and that makes him the true vine. Embodied in Jesus, in some ways, is the entirety of Israel. And actually, when you read other portions, of, even in the New Testament, you'll see in, I believe it is Matthew, David, you can correct me if I'm wrong. In Matthew, uh, we hear about the story of Jesus going into Egypt. And he is fulfilling that same exodus when he comes out of Egypt that the people of God did. Jesus recapitulates that, which is supposed to alert us. Jesus, in some way, is doing everything that God had hoped his people would out of loving relationship. So Jesus, the true vine, and he's that because of his relationship with his heavenly father and his relational uh, relationship with us as kind of um, when he goes onto the cross, he is doing what none of Israel could do in terms of living that perfectly obedient life of saying, Lord, not my will, but yours. That is Jesus' prayer. So the second thing is, uh, is this idea of fruitfulness and how it is. What is the recipe that Jesus gives us for being really fruitful? And I will completely bet, although I'm probably not supposed to bet as a Christian woman, um, despite the derby the other night, uh, that there is not a single person here who does not deeply want to be useful, fruitful. You can be five years old and be so glad when your parent lets you carry the grocery bag to help. One of the things that's so hard about retirement is this sense that maybe you are no longer being fruitful, you're no longer being useful in the way that you thought you once were. We deeply want to be useful and fruitful. And of course, those disciples deeply wanted that as well. And Jesus is speaking in this particular passage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to a large group. In fact, Judas has already slipped out of the conversation to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus is now talking to his devoted followers. And he's telling them how to be deeply fruitful. You know, you can be a Christian and not be all that fruitful. It's a possibility. Jesus says, if you believe in me to be fruitful, you need to abide. This interesting word, abide, what does it really mean? Well, one thing I want to point out is that Jesus' recipe for fruitfulness is something that could be utilized anywhere at any time. You could be drawing your last breath in a prison cell, and according to Jesus' recipe, you could be fruitful because you can abide. And out of that comes good fruit. Abiding, I'm going to give a negative example of abiding, a real and negative example. I was visiting my parents this uh, Saturday, actually, in Baltimore, and I took a plane. And 
I noticed as we were all at the airport, everybody was abiding in their phones. And, you know, when you think about it, what was happening? Well, you know, I do this too. I, you know, I, I need directions and I go to my phone. And, you know, sometimes I need a little pick-me-up. And so, you know, I think, well, I'll just look at Instagram. Maybe I'll see my daughter doing something or my son. I'll just get a little boost, you know, looking at Instagram. And then, ooh, there's an advertisement in Instagram of something that I really ought to buy or do. And so Instagram is not just giving me a boost, it's actually, it's forming my bank account, which is interesting. Sort of abiding in my phone and the fruits of abiding in my phone. And then also, you know, sometimes you could be really disappointed with the political situation in your country or this and that, and you might decide that what you ought to do is post that on your phone. There's all kinds of ways we interact with our phones that are kind of abiding, and it forms us. Well, Jesus says, abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do no truly good, eternal, lasting fruit apart from this vine life. Well, what does abiding in Jesus look like? If we know what abiding in our phone looks like, what is that? Well, I will say, first of all, abiding in Jesus, first of all, comes from actually reading the Word of God. You know, you can be a Christian and not read a lot of the Word of God. God can save you even without reading the Word of God. God can make you his own. You can be baptized. You can be confirmed maybe in some places without reading the Word of God. But you cannot be deeply fruitful without personally engaging in growing in understanding the Word of God, reading it on your own, reading it with other people. Furthermore, how do we even know what good fruit looks like if we don't read the, the Bible? I mean, the world tells us what good fruit looks like. You know, good fruit could look like earning a lot of money. That could look like a lot of good fruit, and you could do a lot of good things with earning a lot of money. But actually, the Bible never mentions that as good fruit. It doesn't say it's bad. It just says that's not the deepest, goodest, eternal fruit. None of that money is coming with us to heaven. Good fruit is not necessarily, you know, earning a really great, important degree. You know, we revere that. Heck, I revere that. I come from the land of your importance is the degree that you earned. But that is never mentioned in the Bible as a particularly interesting fruit. The good fruits that are mentioned in the life of Jesus. Turning the other cheek. Spectacularly good fruit. Forgiving, praising God is a good fruit. Giving thanks to God, wonderful fruit. Witnessing to the life of Jesus as your personal Savior, fantastic, rich, Cabernet Sauvignon fruit. Giving away our second coat, telling the truth, loving our neighbor as ourself. You know, it's through reading the Bible that we even know what is the good fruit, what is the really 
good fruit that we're after. So, first of all, abiding in Jesus, what does it look like? Growing in the knowledge of Scripture. Second of all, praying. Praying is one of the most important things we can do to abide in Jesus. So I was visiting my father, and he loves to tell jokes, and here is one. So there is a cab driver and a priest, and they arrive at the pearly gates. And Peter comes, and he sees the taxi driver, and he shows them to this fantastic beautiful mansion with a pool and tennis courts and a grill and state-of-the-art everything. And the cab driver says, well, thank you. This is just lovely, you know. And then he takes the priest and he, and he shows him to this little shack, you know, not even running water. And the priest says, you know, I think there's been, there's been a mistake made here. Um, you know, I, I have read the Word of God all my life, and I have preached upon it, and I've been devout. And Peter said, oh, I know. He said, thank you. He said, but you know, when people rode in that taxi, they prayed. <laughs> and when they listened to your sermons, they fell asleep. So, uh, just the importance of praying in uh, this abiding in the life of Jesus. And to add to that, um, how do we pray? Well, you know, that phone imagery, I'm going to say a wonderful way to pray is what I will call the text message prayer. It goes like this. You're Mary. It's a wedding at Cana. Jesus, they have no wine. That is a text message prayer. Mary actually prayed it, and lo and behold, Jesus turned the water into wine. It is telling God what's up, truly and honestly, with your life. It can be giving thanks. God, this is a beautiful morning. God, uh, thank you that my, my daughter has come home to visit me. It could be, um, God, my girlfriend just broke up with me. I'm, I'm just undone. Text message prayer sees the reality of our life and gives it to God. And within that, I want to also point to the really essential part in our prayer life of what has been a lost art, uh, I think, for Christians, but was very rich in the Old Testament, and that is lament. Honestly telling God what you see and experience, even if it's profoundly disappointing. I was, uh, I was listening actually to a parent who was, was having trouble because their child was losing faith because uh, they saw this dissonance between the world and who God is. You know, there's coronavirus just devastating India, and God is supposed to be sovereign and good and loving. And, and this child was like, well, how can those two things be? be true. That's where lament comes in. We don't try to sort of be bigger than God and say, well, well, we'll just be spiritual and we won't worry that people are all dying. No, we're supposed to say, God, those people are dying. Help. Otherwise, we create this, actually, we start to separate ourselves from the vine. The importance of knowing 
that in telling God the truth of our own hearts, he is big enough, he is good enough, he is loving enough to answer, to answer. So, abiding, what do we do? We read scripture, we grow in scripture, we pray, even the text message prayer. And, and just to add one thing, you know, if we were to look and say, worry that it's too rude to tell God what we really think, if, even if we read that Psalm 80 and said, I don't think I can be that rude or impertinent with God, we look at the cross and we look at Jesus. And what did he say from that cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the true vine talking. He, he didn't say that with lack of faith. He said that with the most faith that there has ever been in the world, the most loving devotion to his Father. He entrusted to his Father exactly where he was on that cross. And out of that, the power of resurrection, the reality of resurrection. So prayer, and then finally, the last thing, um, I'll just say, I could say it in a fancy way, you know, participating in the beloved community, but I'm just gonna say the last thing that is necessary to abide in Jesus is to come to church. And I say that um, for many reasons. Being part of the body of Christ is necessary to abide. There's so many reasons for why, and I'm sure you all know, having not been able to come to church for a lot of months, why it's so important in order to bear fruit to be able to come to church. But um, I'll just point to one reason today, which is the mystery of the Eucharist. Abiding in the vine, mysteriously, you are going to be given the body of Jesus Christ to put in your mouth. He is going to abide in you, and if you ever wondered, is it really true, you're going to taste it. And it's real. And somehow we can only do that in church together. And that is a way of abiding in the vine, in the fullness of the life that Jesus has for us. And then, finally, you know, as good Protestants, Episcopalians, I think we've, we've been shy about saying that God expects us to bear good fruit because we come out of the Reformation and we're so worried because, you know, the, the critique was that in Roman Catholicism, uh, it, it sounded as if the only way you could be saved by God was to do good works and that God would sort of calculate out your good works and then decide whether he was going to save you on that basis, as though there was a little scorecard being kept. And the Protestants said, no, no, no. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And that is true. But Jesus still wants us to do good works. That is his desire and joy. And he says that we will be fruitful, abundantly fruitful in good works, works of mercy, works of love, works of charity. We'd be abundantly fruitful if we abide in him. Amen.